0: Welcome to Stand to Reason, friends. Greg Kokel here, your host, uh, giving you a piece of my mind today. Um, Incidentally, I had a wonderful time with Amy Hall today with hashtag STRask, and if you you subscribe to this podcast but not to that one, you're missing out. Um, I actually think in some ways that's much better because Amy's in charge, and she also makes a a regular contribution to every question that comes up and we handle some fun things. It's about 20, 25 minutes. And, uh, I think we do two a week, right? That's we record a bunch, but we're ahead of the game now, but we like to have some in the can in case I'm out of town, like we will be next week. Um, uh, at, uh, we have our conference in Minneapolis this weekend here and, um, massive number of people signed up. We're over 3,500. Uh, we are going to make a record Uh, with this, this, uh, this reality in Minneapolis. And then we go to another big professional conference in Denver, Colorado, which is a fun time for all of us to connect with our colleagues and be together. We are hardly ever all together, all of our team, especially our speaker team, at one time. We're all different parts of the country, other parts of the world in some cases, so it's great at a reality, six a year to do that, and uh, and then our one time a year, the week before Thanksgiving, at Evangelical Theological Society and the Evangelical Philosophical Society, they meet conjointly. And this year, this is about five days, and this year they meet in Denver, so we'll all be there after our time in Minneapolis. But uh, so we're looking forward to that. How did I get off onto that? I don't know. <laughs> oh, and. Uh, I still don't know, but I I was commending to you, (laughs) STR-ask, Amy, and uh, she's fabulous. So um, if you don't listen to that, you ought to. And by the way, with two hours a week of this show and two episodes a week of that, that's four times a week. I mean, that's like your daily bread, (laughs) kind of. Uh, All right, so um, we're still looking for an office manager opportunities for applying for that front office job is are open go to uh, str dot org slash careers for more information and uh, the details are there uh, we're not looking for speakers just so you know and uh, and also this is <laughs> there's a requirement that the uh, front office manager actually be in our front office so that means uh got to live in here close by in southern california um and we're in long beach area so if somebody is interested in moving then we're open to that obviously um, but uh having somebody within striking distance is probably more convenient for everyone involved so um there i want to respond to something that i haven't heard about recently okay and um But I I know it's still afoot, as it were. It's a concern that I have about revelation and others who are offering revelation, that is, words from the Lord. Now, I have a broader concern about the whole notion of hearing the voice of God and uh, its biblical legitimacy the way people have characterized it and it's tied in with my understanding of what the Scripture teaches about decision-making and the will of God, and many of you are familiar with that. But one, one piece of that larger puzzle is the idea that everyone can be a prophet. If they practice enough, they can get good at it. And so I have been in circles, uh, and also closer friends of mine in churches, Where the idea was, okay, we can talk about it, but we need to hear from God to see what his opinion is. Now, by the way, if you need to hear from God to find out his opinion about some course of action that the church has taken, then why are you talking about it? If God is the one you're going to hear from and he is the final adjudicator of this decision, why are you discussing it amongst yourself? That's wasted breath. Just go to God, let him tell you what to do, if this is a sound policy, and then do it. All right? All you need to be is an order taker. Now, I don't think what God is, what God desires of the local church and even Christians is for us to be good order takers. Like, okay, here's the, here's the assignment, take the assignment. I think he wants us to develop us into wise people which is why there's so much teaching in Scripture to instruct us on how to make decisions, and to be sound in those decisions, and to be wise in the application of those decisions. Now, the presumption there is that's because God isn't going to tell you what to do in most of those circumstances, which is precisely what we find in Scripture. Okay? Um, there is no model, in certainly in the New Testament, where Christians are to hear from God regarding the basic things that they're supposed to do. You know, it's interesting, um, and just look at the book of, I, I have looked through every line of the book of Acts, for example, to see the patterns of God revealing his will there, and it turns out it only happens fourteen times, and usually it 's a supernatural thing that goes on, and there 's a vision or there 's a dream or an angel shows up, and some specific action is given there 's not any of this nudge nudge hint hint, this is the way I want you to go kind of thing. Okay, at least in the those incidents when we have a clear characterization of the modality or the uh, um, the uh, what's the other word the I'm trying to think of the fancy philosophical word for the way it feels and the way it comes across to us the way we experience this. No, usually it's a supernatural kind of thing. It's not that, but it's interesting how the Book of Acts starts there is Jesus giving his final charge, and then he's ascended into heaven, and everybody's standing around looking into the sky. And uh, one of the last things that happened with him and his disciples is he had said, um, you, you know, the disciples asked him, is now the time you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel, or something like that. Okay, we got it. You died on the cross, you rose from the dead, rock and roll. Let's go. Let's get this done with. Let's have your kingdom. And, and Jesus said, look, at, and it isn't for you to know the times and epochs that the Father is established by his own plan. He's, got, the Father's got a plan, okay? It's not your job to figure that out. Here's what your job is. Do what you were told to do. <laughs> Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You got a job to do. Get hacking on the job, okay? And then he's gone. And what did they do? They stood there looking up into the sky, And the angel said, what are you doing? Get to work. My paraphrase, of course, but notice that. Get to work. They were given a general commission. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. God doesn't need to tell Peter to go talk to, you know, whatever, Zechariah over there in the other town today. That's, those details are pretty much for us to figure out unless God intervenes with something special. Okay, so this is I'm teasing out a, a basic concern I have about decision-making the will of God, or the way people pursue that, and how they figure out what ministry they're going be in. I don't think it works out the way many Christians have characterized it. Well, the Lord told me, and I feel led by the Spirit now. That. that certainly is what Paul meant by led by the Spirit. When you look at the two passages where he uses the phrase, Galatians 5 and Romans 8. Okay, so I'm suggesting there is a mistaken way that Christians have understood how this project works, okay? It's not a biblical way, but it is a received tradition in the body of Christ, and it's very compelling because everybody talks about it like it's just a biblical fact, and occasionally there are Bible verses, like the verses that said, led by the Spirit, that seem to comply or comport with this point of view. Now, of course, when you read the passage, that isn't what Paul means. I'm just saying that. But I was in church just Sunday, listened to a sermon, and there was the statement, you know, the disciples follow—disciples of Christ now follow where the Spirit leads them to go. And was employing this methodology, which I'm suggesting is mistaken. Okay, now, a piece of that larger project is that if God is going to give directives, and that's the way we make the decisions, how is God going to give those directives? There are different ways that are suggested. Most of them are hint-hint. But sometimes— in principle at least, there's a prophetic word, okay? And so maybe God wants to prophesy through you or through me or through other people, and we just haven't learned how to do it well. And so maybe we should learn about how to do that. You know, this is the mentality. And uh, I, by the way, I'm not a cessationist. I, I don't think there's any good biblical reason to think that Things that happened in the first century aren't going to happen now, whether it's gifting or activities of the Holy Spirit, whatever. Now, I, that doesn't mean I buy everything that comes down the pike, and I, uh, for many years I was in a mildly charismatic church environment where tongues were offered and interpretations and uh, prophetic words, thus saith the Lord, and I, I have no conviction that I ever heard the real McCoy in any case tongue's interpretation or prophecy. Uh, But but I'm just simply saying I'm not theologically against it, but I am skeptical because I've seen abuses, all right? And I'm open to be convinced in any individual case, but I just haven't seen it. So, um, I'm especially concerned with this notion, though, that prophecy is something—prophesying is something you learn to do. And that this, for a time, there, I mean, almost was a fad, where you are you are practicing prophecy, and some take this as a stage of spiritual development, spiritual formation. You learn to be able to speak the words of God, as it were. Um, And for those who suggest that, you might want to take in to consider Peter's instruction on the nature of revelation. And that would be in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, okay? Um, So, I'm offering a corrective here. I think that the concept of practicing prophecy is profoundly wrong-headed. That prophecy, which is revelation from God, is not something you learn to do. And I'm going to give you my reasons biblically. and. Second Peter chapter one, the last couple of verses, is a good place to start. Now, when Peter is talking here in Second Peter, he mentions that he that that the things that the apostles have conveyed to the church, they haven't made these things up. He said they're, they're not they're not an invention of us, or to put it precisely here, Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When were you eyewitnesses of the coming and the power of the Lord? At the transfiguration. In fact, Jesus does say to the group, there are some of you he's standing here who will not, you you how does he put it, you will not die, essentially is what he's referring to. Until you witness the Son coming in power and glory, well, then the next verse. There's a chapter division, unfortunately, that breaks at that point. But the next verse says that it's the transfiguration. They go up on the hill, and Jesus is transfigured. And then Peter is referring to that here, calling it the coming and power of our power and coming of our Lord. He said, "We we saw Him. What's the word I'm looking for? I want to say magified, magis." Read. <laughs> I'm just making that up, right? Well, Shakespeare made up a bunch of words. They saw him in his majesty and in his glory and in his coming. Not the second coming, but this manifestation of the glory of him that he referred to, Jesus referred to it as his coming. Peter is referring to it in the past now as his coming. We were eyewitnesses of that majesty. Um, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Okay, so now he explains that incident, and Peter explains that mystical remark, some will not taste death until they see me coming in power and glory. Okay, and then Peter explains, well, this was it, the transfiguration. And and we, ourselves, he says, heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, there it is. Next verse, 19. So, we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, he's referring to the prophetic word now. So, we have this additional evidence this corroboration from Jesus there, and that fits the prophetic word that we should pay attention to. All right? And then he says, verse 20, and here's the key. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. What does he mean by that? Don't we have to interpret Scripture? Yes, but that's not what he means by the phrase. How do you know? Keep reading. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. When when Peter is saying that no scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, he's saying that the meaning is not coming from us individually, like we fabricate this. The meaning is inherent in the words that God intends. He's communicating a specific meaning through specific words. It's not a human invention. It's a divine act of revelation. That's what Peter is saying. It was not an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, question, if real prophecy is not an act of human will, why are people practicing it? Stepping out in their will to practice and see if they get good at it? It's not that kind of a gift. Since God is the author of prophecy, every word of prophecy—or Scripture, for that um, matter—for the same reason, is God's Word. And it has a very specific, determinate meaning. In other words, it means something in particular, Um, and that is the meaning in the mind of God when he originally gave the words. So, one thing we take away is that there are no private messages in the text. What we're supposed to do is look at the words which are inspired, all graphe, all the writing is inspired and profitable, God breathed, profitable for teaching, correction, training, etc. 2 Timothy chapter 3, okay? It's the writings, and when we look closely at the writings that is the inspired prophetic word, then it is those words that are have embedded in them meaning by God a divine act That we're supposed to figure out. But the second observation is, since prophetic words are God's own words, there's no point in practicing. Because with true prophecy, practice cannot make perfect. The message is perfect already. The message is perfect already. How do you know that? Because it's God. (laughs) I mean, if you're accepting the biblical record of the testimony, and I'm talking to Christians now, not to non-Christians, it's not apologetics, this is theology. If you're offering a prophecy that is a true prophecy, it is not your prophecy, it's God's prophecy. And if it's God speaking, then it's perfect already. It doesn't get better with your practice. That's the point I'm making. All right? God doesn't make mistakes. Because prophecy is an act of divine will and not human will, it cannot err. Which is why the prophets in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy had to be perfect. If they made a mistake, then they were speaking presumptuously. And, you know, that cost them dearly. They signed their prophecies essentially in their own blood that was the price of making mistakes because god doesn't make mistakes okay now all of this is i mean i don't know why i'm even talking about this in a certain sense because what could be more obvious here's the passage from second peter we know the prophecy or the the requirement for a prophet in Deuteronomy, perfection because of the nature of prophecy. A prophecy is from God, so it's going to be perfect if it's really from Him. And all you have to do is reflect on prophecy. Well, that's God speaking, and through my mouth. Okay, well, men make mistakes. Really? Yeah, they do. When they're not divinely inspired. But when they're divinely inspired, they don't make mistakes. If you're going to say we have to practice prophecy to get good at it, that means the disciples had to practice, or the apostles had to practice writing Scripture until they got it right. But we don't say that. We say the Scripture is right the way it is because God's inspired it. It's God-breathed. He secures the accuracy of it. So even though there are human, fallible men that are writing because God is behind it, they don't make mistakes. Now, again, I'm not doing apologetics here. I'm not defending the notion. I'm just saying this is the what the Scripture teaches. And if we accept the teaching of it, then we understand that this isn't something you practice. And if you practice prophecy, if that's your view, that it's necessary, then you've undermined the authority of all Scripture, which we hold to be without error because it was inspired by God even through fallible men. Get the point? And uh, as I pointed out, this is what distinguishes true prophets from the false ones who, um, in chapter 2, next few verses, Peter says, malign the truth. Biblical prophets don't, didn't practice then. And even though the text says, oh, the school of the prophets, I'm not sure what that means, but it doesn't mean that they were learning to prophesy. Well, why does it say school? I don't know. But prophecy isn't something you learn. Why? Because it's not an act of human will. It's an act of divine will. And the divine will makes no mistakes. So, whenever you practice prophecy, point uh, quote-unquote, practice prophecy, you are announcing to the world that you are laboring in your own effort. All right. Any message forthcoming from your practice is the fallible product of your own lips. It's not God's message to anybody. Don't sign his name on it. If you're in a group that is prone to this silliness, and I'm choosing my words advisedly, it's silliness, friends. It's foolishness. It's also very dangerous. If you're in a group like that, remind each other you're only talking to yourselves, and maybe it'd be better to try to do something else. And then you can thank God you're not living a theocracy because you'd be dead. <laughs> All right, let's take a break and uh, come back in a moment with more questions on Standard Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STR Ask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STR Ask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Have you seen our brand new website, Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Stand to Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with a confidence clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Right, so I just thought of a rejoinder to my point of view. Amy, I, I asked Amy during the break here, I said, How, why is this so hard for people? You see, "It's not hard. It's pretty straightforward biblically, but there are people who disagree with that. And uh, sometimes st- uh, lettered people will disagree. And I know one line of disagreement is that prophecy in the New Testament is different from prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, unless we have a clear statement that that's the case, in the testament i don't know why we should believe that the, the text never says that it talks about prophets in the old testament and prophets in the new testament it never says there's a difference we're not alerted to that by any writer but there is a the, but the, the that there's a difference is is uh, a result of of a line of thinking in particular what appears to be a mistaken prophecy given in the new testament Or at least it's not entirely true. And the mistaken prophecy is when Agabus uh, binds his hands and tells Paul, speaking prophetically, that's what the text says, he prophesies that when he goes to to Judea, the Jews are going to bind him. They're going to arrest him. There's a little bit more detail. But the argument is, wait a minute, that's not what happened. Paul went to Jerusalem, and he was arrested by the Romans, not by the Jews. Oh, so Agabus was only part right. He got the arrest right, but he got the parties of the arrest wrong, okay? So that means he is part right and part wrong. But he was still called a prophet, and nobody was asking for his head, right? So the reason he goes—and and I, I respect this line of thinking, I think it's completely m- m- mistaken, and I'll tell you the reason why, but I'm just trying to be fair to the point—that he got it half right. And so, then when we read in First Thessalonians 5, do not despise prophetic utterance, but examine everything carefully, well, the idea is that we're to look at the whole prophecy and then we're to discern which pieces of the prophecy are accurate and which pieces are not. Now, I think I've fairly characterized the rejoinder to my point earlier, but I I don't know how a person is going to do that. So, you have the person who's allegedly speaking for God. Here is the prophet who speaks, but we can't trust what he says. What we have to do is we got to, what, group together? And then, like, okay, so this is the part which we Bear witness to, and this is the piece that we don't there's another part over here we bear witness to, but we don't so we're we accept half, but not the other half now, i i certainly we are to examine everything carefully, but I don't think that's what Paul had in mind when he said that that since prophecy now is different, and people make mistakes, that we're supposed to parse through the prophecy and figure and and winnow the good out of the bad, okay um so <clears throat> I think examining carefully probably had a lot to do with the Old Testament criteria—that, one, they had to be accurate insofar as they predicted something in the future, and two, they had to be consistent with what God had already revealed as true. You couldn't have a prophet taking you on a wild wild theological goose chase, right? Okay, so, but what about Agabus? This is not difficult, okay? It's not difficult. Agabus said, "The Jews. Oh, uh, and I, I. Maybe I should get the prophecy. If you know, I, I'm just going from memory. So uh, I actually don't even know where that is. It Acts 19. Maybe you know, Amy. She could help me. Somewhere in there. Uh no, no, no. Paul was this later in the Acts. Paul's defense before the Jews. Conspiracy. Okay, now that's before that. Anyway." I paraphrase it, I think, reasonably accurately. Okay, the, the paraphrase is adequate. What is it? Oh, thank you, Amy. 2110. Oh, I'm, I'm back a page here. Okay, 2110. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, of course, when we read the account, um, we realize that the Jews didn't bind Paul. It was the Romans that bound Paul. Okay, how do you account for that? And the answer is the same answer about who was responsible for the crucifixion. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is addressing the Jews, and and he says at the end of his sermon, "'Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified.'" Oh, my gosh, now Peter got it wrong. Doesn't Peter remember that the Jews can't crucify? It's the Romans who crucified. Oh, man, now we got not only does Agabus get it wrong, but now Peter's got it wrong right out of the gate at Pentecost. He's got the flames dancing on his head, and he's still getting it wrong. He's just been baptized in the spirit. He's already missing it. No, he's not missing it. It was the Jews who were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. The, the Romans were just the henchmen. The fact that the Roman soldiers were the one who hammered the nails into Jesus' hands and feet is irrelevant to the point that Paul, Peter is making there on Pentecost Sunday. The Jews were responsible for his execution. That's why he said the way he said and in the same way, the Jews were responsible for Paul's arrest by Romans. They didn't get it wrong. They both got it right in, in the manner that mattered. They weren't talking about who did the binding. They were talking or the crucifying. they were talking about who was responsible that it was ultimately done. Neither got it wrong. They both got it exactly right, so this text is not reason for us to, to doubt that New Testament prophecy is the same as Old Testament prophecy and the tests are the same. We don't have any good reason to doubt that. They are the same. There's no reason to think otherwise. And with that, it seems to me that addresses whatever biblical case has been made that prophecy can be partial and inaccurate. In the New Testament times. Anyway, so I was just anticipating this objection. Let's go to our uh, open mic calls here, and let me see. I know our friend, my friend, Brian Kovald, and I've had dinner, uh, my wife and his wife, and he and I together. It's been a while, but we enjoyed that. Uh, He has offered a question, and uh, let's see what Brian has to say here and see if I have anything to respond to it.
1: Hey, Greg, this is Brian uh, sending you a question. Um, <clears throat> I have an 11-year-old son, and unfortunately, over the last year and some change, we've learned that he has pretty significant scoliosis um, with the curvature of his spine. It wasn't too surprising because I grew up with my mom um, really fighting scoliosis and kyphosis with her spine. And she's had so many surgeries and I've seen how much it's affected her. Mm -hmm. And so when we, when our pediatrician pointed out that we should get this looked at, and then we saw the x-rays and saw that it's really pretty significant. um, You know, it was, it was really hard to see that. Mm -hmm. And to learn that news about my son, just knowing how it's been so difficult for my mom through her life. Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, in our small group, uh, through our church, this came up and, and we were asking for prayer. And one of the leaders of the group um, suggested, oh, you should bring your son to uh, my one of my, I think it's her sister-in-law's healing sessions. Um, I don't know how often they do it, but it sounds like periodically they'll have these nights where people gather and she heals. <laughs> and... Um, in the moment, I was like, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> but as I thought about it, I thought, no, don't think I'm going to do that. Well, why not? Well, I certainly would. I would be amazed, overjoyed if, if um, someone laid their hands on my son's back and suddenly his spine was straight. But a couple big concerns is I think I'm really concerned. What does this do to my young, impressionable 11-year-old son when his back isn't healed, what's that do to his view of God and how God is involved in our lives? Um, I was curious what your thoughts were about that, really in light of, I think, the huge challenge that you guys speak to so often of young people growing up and then walking away from the faith deconstructing. Mm-hmm. And I just think, you know, we're trying to be careful with how we raise our two boys, um, teaching them truth. Um, but also not being too, well, I don't know what the right word is for it, but, (laughs) uh, we, we want them to stay in the truth, stay in the church. Mm -hmm. And I feel like an experience like this maybe could do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, I'm curious just what your thoughts are, um, about, uh, events like these healing events. My thought is if this was really something, a gift that somebody really had, wouldn't they just spend all their time at children's hospitals and <laughs> cancer centers? Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I wanted to hear your thoughts.
0: Thanks mm-hmm. so much. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate the question. And it's a heartfelt concern um, because people have loved ones beset with these difficulties, then their offerings of prayer for healing. In this one, it's a healing event, and uh, two questions here, one about um, the Son's uh, frame of mind if God doesn't answer the prayer, and then the other one is the legitimacy of the healing events. So, uh, the first one is actually a problem regardless of the healing events. And so, um, Brian, your own church group has been praying, and certainly that liability is there just having the church pray for your son if your son is involved in the prayer, is aware of the prayer, okay? Because it may be that God won't answer that prayer. Now I think the way to deal with this is to simply and clearly inform your son of a proper theology on this. God is able if he's willing. God is able if he's willing. And and it's our part to ask god and trust him to act if he wants to so um if your son knows you know um i don't know son <laughs> role playing here son uh, we're going to pray for you we don't know whether god is going to answer and say yes or not we don't know sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't But, um, if you don't ask, the answer is no. (laughs) So, we're going to ask, and we're going to maybe repeatedly ask, and see if God does something or what God does. We don't know. Now, that same rule applies to groups of people, like your own home church, praying for your son, or, in principle at least, the, the healing event. Happening, you know that you, he might go to. I'm not recommending you go, but the point I'm making here is whatever li- that first liability that you're concerned with is also a liability for any prayer for healing, and the the uh, the antidote to it is to give a proper theology. We are going to trust God and ask Him for something that He may, in His own wisdom, not provide. Let's ask Him, and let's press on and pray and see. God answers some prayers, but he doesn't answer other prayers because he has other purposes. That's what I would communicate regarding the uh, first thing. Regarding the second thing, I, I personally am suspicious. Um, I, I, um, you know, been down the pike a bit, seen lots of stuff. And uh, I was actually at a Catherine Kuhlman uh, healing session—some might remember her way back in the 70s, she's been long gone—and somewhat controversial, um, not theologically unsound, I don't think, like many of the word-faith teachers, but she just seemed to have a unique capability. And I, th- my sense, my re- recollection, is that there were people who were genuinely healed at those events. Okay, so I, I I'm not against the idea of an event providing healing, but there are so many shenanigans that are going on that I think that the the number of legitimate examples uh are, are far in the minority compared to the illegitimate examples. So I am suspicious. I think things like this can turn into a circus and and when God when there's no result then the blame is often placed on the Christian who isn't healed, and that's just cruel. So uh, I'm suspicious of that. And the biblical injunction is to go to the elders, and that's in the book of James. If any of you is sick, then then there's an anointing, which I think is more kind of symbolic. I don't think there's any magic in the oil, but uh, in any event, there's a, a, then the then there's prayer offered in faith, um, and uh that is the methodology that God um endorses scripturally um and if your 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 local church and your friends are praying i i don't it seems to me there might be a problem not with your with your son taking him to something not where there 's a prayer that doesn 't get answered but where there 's a circus environment that just doesn 't ring true to him. And oftentimes, that's what you see there, extreme things. Now, in the case of Catherine Kuhlman, um, that would be K-U-H-L-M-A-N, if somebody wants to look her up. Um, I have a very strong recollection of this, because I was a fairly new Christian, and I wanted to see what was going on, and I'm testing out the waters a little bit and different ideas. And I was up in the balcony of this church, and uh, she was she was preaching and praying and talking, whatever, and frankly, it was a little boring, and I started to fall asleep. And then, all of a sudden, she started identifying uh, healings that she said were taking place in the audience, okay? And the people for whom it took place were to come down. So, in this case, she's not healing anybody. She is acknowledging the healing that's taken place. It wasn't through her instrumentation. If you are have cancer, come forward, and I'll lay my hands, and the cancer will all disappear, and now you'll fall down in front of all your friends." It wasn't that kind of thing at all. But one thing that I do remember distinctly is that Catherine said, there's a woman in the balcony, that would be where I was sitting, who has severe um, uh, varicose veins, Those veins have been healed. Reach down and feel your legs. You'll find that they were perfectly smooth. And I heard over my right shoulder, I heard a woman like scream, Uh, scream like with surprise. And Because that was the woman who reached over and her legs were perfectly smooth. Then she got up and she's weeping and she came down the stairs. Now, I'm just telling you what happened. Okay, I didn't follow up on this. I didn't look at the lady's legs. I didn't get a history. I didn't do any of all that. This has just happened. So I have reason to believe there was an authentic healing that happened under those circumstances. Okay, I'm just saying. Um, so maybe Catherine Kuhlman was 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 a, 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 the real deal. I'm chuckling because she was on Johnny Carson once, and Johnny Carson said, "Well," and he was very respectful to her, and Johnny Carson said, "Well." <laughs> Um, a lot of people say that the healing that you're responsible for or that you see happen at your meetings was psychosomatic. And she said to Johnny, she said, those are the most difficult kind, <laughs> which I thought was kind of a clever response. That's why that's the hardest one to heal, the psychosomatic ones. So I, I, I'm not just giving my full endorsement of Catherine Kuhlman. It's long gone. But I am saying that there are things that happen that are pretty remarkable. And as far as I could tell, God was getting glory there, and some very real things were happening in that uh, in that auditorium at that time. Which is the same auditorium, by the way, that they have the Oscars in. <laughs> just occurred to me. Uh, anyway, um, that's a whole different kind of event, right? Um, uh, so, um, so I wouldn't, I would not take Brian. I wouldn't take your son to a healing event like that. Uh, I just, it's too quirky and weird. And I, 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 I guess I have a conviction, if God wants to heal your son, he will work through the laying of the hands of the of the local church leadership who prays in faith. And then if God wants to work, he'll work through that. I don't think your son is not going to get healed because he didn't go to the right healing event. And I think you know, may be protecting him from a bizarre thing that would be damaging to his faith, not the fact that God didn't answer the prayer because that's a liability under any circumstance that you pray, but uh, but because there's a circus mentality. Anyway, that's that's my my counsel, such as it is. Um, Should we take some more of these? Yeah, let's do that. I'm just going to work down the list because these the top of the list, the ones who have been waiting longest for me to give a response. Let's go to G which is a, a woman, uh, G.S., a short, a short Hi, one. Hi, Gray.
1: I just wanted to ask whether it's true that some people are called by God to live a life of singleness. And I also wanted to ask for your view on Matthew 19, verse 12, and 1 Corinthians 7. Thank you.
0: So these are the passages— that are related, and uh, let me just go to 1912 and read that. I mean, I, I think I know what's going on here. Yes, there are eunuchs—this is Jesus—there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. In other words, there are there are some, some males who are incapable of having a normal sexual life, and that's a congenital defect. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. That means they were castrated. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, He is able to accept this, let him accept it. So it does seem that there, at least at one point, there is a person who has either decided to be completely sexually celibate or has, uh, has, has arranged for his own castration for that purpose, I—that seems strange to me. But Peter Abelard, that ha, he did that. He had this, like this, mystic of the, you know, the medieval period. Um, okay, so there's that comment. Let's go to First um, Corinthians seven. And this is where Paul is talking about marriage. Now, uh, he was talking about the decision to get married. It's the only place—it's the most extensive passage that talks about the decision to get married. And incidentally, if God were going to find a mate for you, and that was the divine way, this is where we'd find it, because this is where Paul talks about that decision. And he's saying it's better for people who are essentially— struggling with sensuality as single people to get married and have that sensual desire satisfied in the appropriate way which is through marriage. And then he makes that comment there in chapter 7, the first couple of verses. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. He's speaking sexually there. He doesn't mean just the physical act of touching. Um, but let every man have his own wife. And, and in the, the husband, um, the, the wife's body belongs to the husband, the husband's body belongs to the wife. And so they can satisfy each other sexually and therefore protect each other from temptation. Pretty straightforward there. Okay. But then he goes on to say he's asking a, a, a kind of a, a cost benefit question about marriage. Should you get married or should you stay single? And it's interesting, he doesn't say ask God if you should get married. In fact, most people don't ask God that question. They ask God who, because they presume they should, because they want to. Okay. Nothing wrong with wanting to. But it's interesting, he doesn't, He addresses a different issue here, and he doesn't say to ask God. He said there are advantages to being married. You're not sexually—you have, a, you have a, a legitimate outlet for your sexual appetites, okay? Um, there, are, there are advantages. Uh, there, are, there, are, uh, there are also moral obligations. If you get married, you can't get divorced. This is in the passage, all right? Now, there are advantages to be single okay? And that that is that you have an opportunity to serve the Lord without distraction, okay? And uh, uh, the way Paul puts it is you could have undistracted devotion to the Lord, but there's a liability. You can't have sex. Now, not everybody can accept that, he says, so if you want sex, then get married. If you want to have undistracted devotion to the Lord, and you're able to manage that, that would be a eunuch for the kingdom, well then, go ahead and uh, stay single and be most effective. Then you're not distracted by familial responsibilities—wife, family, all of that stuff. You can give yourselves entirely to kingdom work, if that's your desire. Now, in my situation, I didn't get married until I was quite... (laughs) Till I was quite late. Uh, I wasn't late for my wedding, but I was late getting there time-wise, age-wise. I was. I had my 48th birthday on my honeymoon. Oh, there you go. Um, why? Well, uh, that's complicated actually, but the point was I was not a s- single-type guy. That wasn't the reason. Like, I finally got persuaded to get married. I always wanted to be married. I was made for marriage. I was made for that kind of relationship, okay? And so, for me, it wasn't the option of undistracted devotion. It was more like undevoted distraction. So, I knew that I didn't have the gift of celibacy. Someone who has the gift of celibacy, I think, can engage celibacy, um, and it's not a frustration for them. Now, some people are celibate, and it's not a gift. It's a circumstance. They want to be married But they're not married for whatever reasons, okay? That's the way it was for me for almost 48 years. Now, during that time, I had a moral demand on my life, and that was to abstain from sexual immorality. Indeed, flee it, okay? And, And so that wasn't what I wanted, being single, but that is the circumstance I was in, and so I had to live according to the appropriate morality Of the circumstance. By the way, this applies to all single persons, even people who have same-sex attraction. And I know they say, oh, well, at least you, in principle, could get married and have legitimate sex, but on your view, I have no option for that at all. That's right. There are moral restraints to our sexual behavior, and they apply to everybody. And some people never get married for whatever reason, and they want to be married. And so what do they do regarding their sexual desires? They say no. And for some of them, they don't have another option because they can't just choose a spouse, get married, and have sex. Those, those are circumstantial situations, and it might be the case that they never get married through no fault of their own and through no choice of their own. So um, I think the difference is how um, one's temperament a person who is um, called by God, so to speak, to live a life of singleness, and I'm just taking that phraseology to mean that they have the gift of celibacy, I think it's easier for them. It's not a, it's not a problem. It might be an annoyance once in a while, but it's not really a struggle. Somebody who's really struggling with being single, being lonely, and being sexually frustrated, I think doesn't have the gift. Now, you may still end up being single, and now it's going to be harder for you to do what's right. Uh, my conviction about this uh, was, and I, since I didn't get married until later, for some reason I got invited to speak to a lot of singles events, which struck me as odd. And I would say that after a while. I'd say, well, I don't know why you asked me to speak here, because I'm this old single guy who's never been married. And I know you single people want to get married. That's why you came to single event. You're trying to find somebody, which is fine. Why would you want to hear from me who's been unsuccessful? (laughs) Was kind of my approach. But I would ask them a question, and the question I asked was, if you knew you would never get married, let's just stipulate that God revealed to you you would never get married. Okay, let's just stipulate that. If that were the case in your life, I asked the audience of single people, what would you do with your life? Answer that question for yourself, not for me. What would you do with your life? And then when you figure out what that would be, if you came to the point where I'm never going to get married, I got to do something, what am I going to do with my life? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Okay, once you figure out what that is, if you knew you'd never get married, do that now. Go on the presumption that you'll never get married and build a life. Make it happen. Make your life happen. Do the meaningful thing that you would choose to do if you knew you would never get married. Now, that's going to have two consequences. One of them is, if you never get married, you are pursuing a fruitful, meaningful life. That's good. Even though you're maybe don't have the gift, maybe you're a little un- unsatisfied, maybe you're frustrated, you can still do what's right, and pers- that is, in the sexual arena, and also do what's meaningful to you in other areas. You can have a satisfying, fulfilling life, do those things. So, uh, but the other part of it is, I think that makes somebody more appealing <laughs> Somebody that's on the move, somebody that's involved, somebody that's being productive, somebody that's building meaningful relationships and having meaningful activities and pursuing meaningful goals apart from having a spouse. And, you know, curiously, that could make someone more appealing to the opposite sex because they're not waiting around for someone to make their life complete, some spouse to make their life complete. In my case, um, I was doing that, and that's why I could counsel that to be done. Now, I wanted to get married, obviously, but nevertheless, I wasn't going to wait. I, uh, the way I put it is, whoever got me, they were going to hit a moving target. I'm going to be moving. And, um, and that's the way it finally worked out for me. So um, I think that there is a gift, and some people have it, and some people don't. Some of the people who don't have the gift of celibacy get married, but some people who don't have the gift don't get married. And one could argue in a different sense that this is a calling. The way the question is worded here, is it true that some people are called by God to live a life of singleness? Well, I always have trouble with this phraseology, because it a lot depends on what you mean by that. But it may be the case that what they mean is that the circumstance God places you in in life in the broadest sense of a calling, not a nudge of feeling led to go do one thing or another, but the broad sense that you have a a divine hand on your life that's moving and guiding it. You're not listening for the voice. You're aware of the hand on your life as you navigate in life. That could be said of a lot of people. Every person on my team, that could be said of God's hand in their life, that calling in that sense. And it may be that there are people that, in the sovereign sense of God's hand in their life, are called, scare quotes, to be single. And uh, that entails a certain level of trust in God in the midst of a circumstance where this is not what you planned on. This is not what you hoped would be the case. But nevertheless, you still trust in God. Incidentally, um, you could get married and then have a much harder time as a married person than you ever had as a single person, and the same rules would apply. That would be a calling of God on your life to go through a difficult circumstance like this, and it would be incumbent upon you, who suffer according to the will of God in that sense, to entrust yourselves to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Same general principle applies, married or not. All right, friends, that's it for today. Greg Kokel for Standard Reason. Give them heaven. Bye bye now.